This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. When you hear the term religious liberty, what comes to mind? Perhaps being grateful for the ability to attend the church, synagogue, etc. of your choice. Unlike those who might have suffered years of imprisonment in North Korea, China, the USSR, for simply possessing a Bible or other sacred literature. But one side of the political spectrum in this country has claimed for decades now American freedom of religion has been under attack. Examples include the removal of teacher-led school prayer or the banning of religious Christmas displays at city halls. Then, of course, there is the war on Christmas, which is more often than not an issue of private companies encouraging inclusive greetings from employees to customers. It makes perfect sense that with everything else this current administration is doing to remold our nation into what they believe our founders intended, that there should now be a thing called the Religious Liberty Task Force. And yeah, it's a thing. A thing that many say should be of concern to secularists, minority religious communities, and those who value the spirit of pluralism that has for centuries now inspired our better angels. I mean... If you believe in angels, you don't have to, you know. Those of you who are regular listeners of Common Threads know that for the past year and a half, we've paid a good deal of attention to matters of politics and religion that we believe to be somewhat disturbing to those who support a strong wall between church and state. So who better to discuss this current concern with than someone from an organization whose very mission is to counter such efforts? Rachel Laser president and CEO of Americans for the Separation of Church and State, is our guest today. She's a lawyer, advocate, and strategist who has dedicated the last two decades of her life to make the country inclusive for all Americans. She has a proven track record of uniting both faith and secular leaders and advocacy organizations to make tangible progress on some of the most important issues of our time. Previous positions she's held include serving as the Deputy Director of the Religious Action Center of Reformed Judaism. Rachel also directed the Culture Program at Third Way, a Washington, D.C. think tank. In that capacity, she helped draft the first-of-its-kind Common Ground Abortion Bill to be introduced jointly by pro-life and pro-choice members of Congress. And she served as legal counsel at the National Women's Law Center. Rachel is a graduate of Harvard and the University of Chicago, so we welcome to Common Threads, Rachel Laser. Hello. Hello. Nice to be with you, Fred, and with everyone else out there. Yeah, well, well, we certainly appreciate it. I know that this is way off topic here, but I I can't go any further. After reading uh, this introduction about you, this uh, particular project that you were involved in at, at Third Way. You have to tell us about it. I've never heard of uh, a bill 
that got the support of both sides of the abortion debate. So fill us in on that, and, and how, how did it go? Well, um, the bill was called the Reducing the Need for Abortion and Protecting New Parents Act, and it was introduced in three Congresses, and it ended up uh, basically being funded through a funding bill in many of its parts. Um, it came about right sort of in the era when Obama became president, and I think the country was in a very different place, right, a place of hope, a place of you know, common ground and shared values, you know, blue states and red states, but purple states and unity being much more of a theme and a message. And the bill in that sense really was a reaction to that spirit in that moment. And it was something that I started working on at the think tank with a pro-life Democrat um, and a pro-choice Democrat And then um, another project got started at the think tank um, under my leadership called Come Let Us Reason Together, Um, uh, not coincidentally named after a part of the Bible, actually, Isaiah 118. And it was a project that brought together centrist evangelical Christians and progressives and liberals on the most divisive cultural issues out there. The, The mindset was, we're able to come together in certain places, you know, these two communities, like on preventing AIDS in Africa, even on the environment often. You know, there was sort of a movement among these centrist evangelical Christians for cre- what they called creation care, you know, what, what secular environmentalists would call environmentalism, you know, and there was a lot of overlap there. But there was always this huge elephant in the room around things like abortion and gay rights. And so the idea was, can we actually find any overlap, any shared values, even if we agree to disagree on certain aspects of abortion and gay rights, are there any places where we can agree? And wouldn't that achieve a great deal in opening up space for more conversations in general, you know, since it operates as the elephant in the room and the abortion conversation was one of the hardest. I'll say that I think the LGBTQ equality conversation was even harder, but we even found shared values there. But on abortion, we found shared values, and the shared values was this. We can all agree that ideally we would reduce the need for abortions in America. That, um, And again, it was sort of of this moment, right, that about half of all Um, unintended pregnancies result in abortion. And so wouldn't it be great if we worked together to reduce those unintended pregnancies and also if we worked together to do a better job as a country at supporting pregnant women and supporting new parents who need help? Because one of the main reasons that women say they have an abortion in the first place, it's not the only reason, but one of the highest ranking reasons is they can't afford to have another child or to have a child. So we coupled these types of policies into a bill that was about, you know, comprehensive and age-appropriate sex education. It was about increasing access to birth control for low-income women. And it was about providing support to new parents, 
you know, for that sort of early phase. Again, not going to get you everything you need for the rest of the kid's life, but at least more support from the government and even some additional tax credit money for adoption. And that all became part of this one bill that was introduced by a number of pro-choice and pro-life Democrats. That's the thing. It still remained somewhat partisan in that sense, which was unfortunate. Um, but it, nonetheless, it happened. And that was, you know, a significant achievement. And you're saying that somehow the the spirit of that bill, the, I, I gather the bill as written never got passed, but you're saying that elements of that bill uh, were absorbed into other legislation. Is that correct? Exactly. So, you know, again, Excuse me if I'm speaking too simplistically for, for you and your audience, but, you know, in Congress there are authorization bills and appropriation bills, and the authorization bills get passed, but they really don't have any value until there's money for them, right, to make them happen. So the bill that we had introduced was an authorization bill, which is great. You know, that it's a, it's a huge starting place. But ultimately, funding these things is what enables them to happen. And so in this case, there was a funding bill, an appropriations bill, um, out of the Labor, Health, and Human Services side of an appropriations bill that was able to be passed by a member of Congress, Representative Obi from Wisconsin at that time, who was also, he he was a Democrat. He really sort of, he wasn't pro-choice. He wasn't quite pro-life. He was really kind of in that middle ground. And he was leading, he was leading the appropriation, the relevant appropriations committee at that time and was able to, you know, get funding for a lot of elements of, of that bill. And I'm just curious, what did the opposing side say? Why couldn't you get any Republicans on board? Was it the sex education issue? Was it the money or bring, you know, bringing money in? Right. I mean, I think that there wasn't one reason. Um, And in fact, you know, um, as someone who personally is pro-choice, and I really, you know, wore that very openly as I sort of facilitated between these two different groups, and I would argue that all facilitators have their own bias, and it's actually better to put it on the table (laughs) so that no one feels that you're hiding it or secretly um, opting for your side or something. Sure. Um, I'm, you know, so, um, so ultimately I think that there was, I, well, I, what I was going to say was that my, I had a little bit of a fear to be honest, which was, wow, if this just got adopted as a sort of pro-life approach, that would really make the sort of change the flavor and the spirit of the pro-life movement and I think, you know, make the pro-life movement sell a lot better. You know, we're not trying to, you know, we're what we're really after is reducing abortions, but we want to do that in a meaningful way, not by, you know, hitting the supply side and, you know, so everything goes underground and, you know, it's less safe and everything else, but we really want to work in whatever ways are possible, not just to prevent the pregnancies, but also to you know, provide that support, you know, that chant pro-life, you're a lot, you know, oh no, it's, it's, you know, you're pro-life, but you don't care about the, the babies once they're born. That's an accusation that comes out of the pro-choice community. Right. So, you know, well, but, but as it turned out that, that didn't happen. And even the one democratic group, the pro-life, you know, Democrats for life, they're called ultimately 
were unable to fully embrace the bill, even though they sort of started out more with this think tank where I was because of a lot of the birth control provisions and a lot of their board members were, at the time, Catholics who were tied in with the Catholic hierarchy. And, of course, you know, they felt the need to sort of oppose birth control, um, which, of, of course, is vital, you know, a vital piece of reducing unintended pregnancies. Right. So, in the end, you know, there were those sort of who didn't like, as you said, who didn't like the birth control piece. It's everything you said. There are those, you know, it sort of almost split the the conservatives, right? Because there are sort of the compassionate conservatives that want to uh, provide help for the poor, right? And then there are those who, there are conservatives who don't like the government using our taxpayer money um, for those who, you know, they claim aren't helping themselves more. And so, you know, that also got in the way of some of the, the sort of support for pregnant, you know, government support for for pregnant women and new parents. Sure. Well, I certainly uh, applaud your efforts, and I want to break in very quickly to remind people that if you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Rachel Laser. She's president and CEO of Americans for the Separation of Church and State. And before we get on to today's uh, intended topic, I just have to say that it uh, disappoints me uh, that when you see candidates debate this issue, they usually uh, they usually stay in one camp, uh, a, a very hard line. That is to say that the the Republican usually will say, "I'm 100% pro-life," and I'm I'm. Um, uh, supported by right to life, I have their endorsement, and then the Democrat uh, just says, "I'm I'm for women's choice," and and it, it usually stops there. And I think that if more people, particularly on the uh, uh, left side of the ledger, would uh, voice the concerns uh, and the compassion that you are, I think that uh, we'd be closer to the goal that I many of us share. That's. Yeah, and I and I feel that sort of the issue is that this political moment is about the least likely one for that to happen. Which uh, I agree. Up to your topic, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anyway, we uh, we did uh, call uh, call you to actually talk about uh, this particular uh, task force that uh, that happened. So uh, very quickly, uh, the idea of this religious. Liberty Task Force that uh, Jeff Sessions created, I'm sure, obviously, with the blessings of the administration of of Donald Trump. Uh, Did you see this coming at all? I mean, technically, no, but it's right in line with everything else. So did it surprise me? Not one bit. Sure. I would. I think a lot of people would would agree with that, and and since the inception, this is this is quite new. This is just a few weeks old, and since it started, have they done anything that would support your theory that this is merely an effort to limit gay rights, suppress expression, and hold Christianity above other faiths and ideologies in in this very very short time? In this short time, I've not seen anything happen of any you know. Uh, in any way yet there's sort of been 
nothing um, available to the public about what's evolved. Now, Sessions did mention an attack on a mosque in his speech, introducing the task force. So, you know, do you question his sincerity in protecting all religions? Uh, I also understand that Hindus are attempting to take advantage of this in Maryland, where a temple of theirs is being held up on land use issues. And I believe that Sessions may have made a nod to that as well. So do you, do you, do you think that this is subterfuge? Do you think this is just a, a, a couple of, of things that uh, might be cloaking a, a more nefarious, uh, at least in, in, in your eyes, uh, agenda? I really do, but that doesn't mean that people of other faiths and of religious minorities can't attempt to take advantage of it, and I applaud those efforts, (laughs) Um, you know, where it's possible to seek sort of protection and religious liberty for all. Um, Wonderful. Of course, I think what I mean by religious liberty for all is a more traditional meaning of religious liberty, which is religious liberty laws being protections for um, people of faith and sort of a shield against um, bad things, you know, happening to people of faith rather than religious liberty being weaponized and used as more of a sword that is harming people or discriminating against people. But I I sort of digress. I admit, you asked, you know, are those sort of examples, do they counter my notion in my own head that this is sort of more about, more nefarious and more about religion being used to um, authorize discrimination? And my answer was no, and I just want to explain why. Um, I will start with the words, and I will go to a more worldly picture of this administration. The words at the Religious Liberty Summit that Jeff Sessions used when he announced the Religious Liberty Task Force, to me, are extremely revealing. I will quote from what he said and and read it. A dangerous movement, undetected by many, is now challenging and eroding our great tradition of religious freedom. There can be no doubt, there is no little, this is no little matter. It must be confronted and defeated. So that's one of the things he said. Another thing that he said was, Americans from a wide variety of backgrounds are concerned about what this changing cultural climate means for the future of religious liberty in this country. So what I want to talk about is changing cultural climates, and I want to talk about this dangerous movement now challenging and eroding our great tradition of religious freedom. I would argue that this changing cultural climate and the dangerous movement is more about the first black president, marriage equality, an unprecedented number of women running for office, and the quickly changing demographics in this country around primarily race, but also somewhat race and religion. What I mean by that is we know that starting in 2014, America ceased to be any longer a majority white Christian nation. That's a big deal. 
that's not a little deal. And it's very human to have a reaction to that if you're, for example, a white Christian. And I'm not saying that all white Christians do either, but I mean, it's certainly not, um, I mean, it's, it's understandable to have a reaction to that, but it's also a reality. By 2046, they're estimating that it's no longer going to be a majority white country. So again, to come back to Jeff Sessions' comments of a dangerous movement now challenging and eroding our great tradition of religious freedom that must be confronted and defeated, and the changing cultural climate, I really believe that that's rooted in these changes away from basically white Protestant dominance, you know, in this country, which was the case for so long. And and I think those words are, you know, very, very revealing. You know, that, so, it, I mean, that, yeah. it, it's interesting because if... If someone else said those words, we'd be having a completely different conversation because someone else in his position could have used those words to talk about things like Charlottesville uh, and uh, 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 religious uh, repression in minority religions and all of that, right? If you just look at the words without realizing who said them, would you not agree that that's what somebody could be talking about? But because we know the modus operandi of Jeff Sessions and his history, it's easy to see them in the light that you are shining right now. Yeah, yes. I I, I largely agree with that. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? I mean, if you think about... Um, let's say, like a, a liberal Muslim or a liberal Jew or something saying those words. Exactly. Right? Then you think, okay. But but it's funny because if you imagine that, you could also imagine that what the liberal religious minority would be talking about is sort of the dangerous, emboldened, sort of white nationalist movement that, that has been sort of come to the surface more since, Trump was running for president and became president. That's my point. Uh, right. And, but what's funny is um, that that is, the, it's best maybe put, there's a wonderful uh, public opinion research group called PRRI. Are you familiar with them? I've heard them, yes. I heard they're of great. them, yes. yes. They're great. They, they, released, they're, they're, they really do gold standard public opinion research and ask really interesting questions. They released a poll just last month in July, at the end of July. And the poll, um, and, and it was written about, um, I guess it was conducted by PRRI in the Atlantic. So it found that white evangelical Christians are the only group in this country that think that the United States is headed now in the right direction. 61% of white evangelicals, according to that poll, believed that we're headed in the right direction. But... They're, the, they're truly the only religious group that felt that way. A majority of every other religious group broken down by the survey, which included white mainline Protestants, non-white Protestants, Catholics, and people who described as religiously unaffiliated, I mean, kind of everyone else, felt that the country has gone, and I'll quote, pretty seriously off on the wrong track. And that view, the off-on-the-wrong-track view, was held by 64% of overall respondents versus 61% of white evangelicals who feel like it's going on the right track. So it's, a, it's an interesting sort of moment where 
it's like what is the, what is this un, you know this dangerous movement exactly right again maybe a a religious minority would feel that the dangerous movement is the emboldenment of white nationalists today what jeff sessions it seems to me is talking about and again not just by his words but also by you know who was invited to the summit and we can talk about that too um and of course, all of the administration's other actions, which we can also talk about, is more the threat that he feels is being evidenced by white evangelical fundamentalists. Sure, and and right? s- yes, and since you brought it up, please do tell who was invited to this uh, event. Right. So this was the Religious Liberty Summit. So it had. One woman from Bethany Christian Services, which is a private foster agency um, that stopped getting referrals from Philadelphia County because they discriminate against same-sex couples. So Bethany Christian Services was on, on the panel for the promise and challenge of religious liberty. Then there was uh, a guy from Cornerstone Schools, which is a Christ-centered charter school system in D.C., Then there was a rabbi from the Orthodox Chabad of East Boca Raton. And, of course, the Chabad sect of Judaism is known for siding very often with the religious right. Yes, yes, I'm aware. Then there was Jack Phillips, who is the baker in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, where, of course, he refused to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple who were getting married, uh, thwarting Colorado's public accommodations, non-discrimination law. So that starts to paint a picture of who we're thinking of and who we're talking about when we talk about religious liberty, really. And it's largely the religious, it's not largely, it's really exclusively the religious right. And that's what we've seen also throughout Trump's time and tenure in office so far. In fact, the task force was created that we're talking about was created to enforce the Department of Justice, what we call Blueprint for Discrimination, that was released in 2017 by the Department of Justice under Trump. And that um, blueprint specifically says that taxpayer dollars can be used to discriminate in hiring, even though it's, you know, government funding. And it also suggested that this approach of discrimination can be expanded to allow taxpayer dollars to be used to discriminate in who you serve and what services you provide. So, like, a homeless shelter could refuse to take in a gay teen or a social service agency that serves sex trafficking victims who are, as we know, often victims of physical and sexual abuse, can refuse to take women for reproductive services. So that's another sort of very revealing part of this administration's viewpoint on religious liberty. Here's another one. Oh, oh, wait, let let me stop you there, Rachel. We are out of time for this particular episode, but... But hold that thought. I'm going to ask you to hold it for a full week, <laughs> and Uh-oh. and we will be back talking to you then. Is that a deal? I'm making notes. Okay, very good. Um, 
This is Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Rachel Laser. She's the president and CEO of Americans for the Separation of Church and State. We will be back next week to finish up this fascinating discussion on the new Religious Liberty Task Force. Join us then. This is WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Rachel Laser. She's the president and CEO of Americans for the Separation of Church and State. Our conversation had to do with the Religious Liberty Task Force that has been formed by Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice. And when we ended, there was still so much more to talk about, we invited her to join us again today. A little bit about our guest. Rachel is a lawyer, advocate, and strategist who has dedicated the last two decades of her life to make the country inclusive for all Americans. She has a proven track record of uniting both faith and secular leaders and advocacy organizations to make tangible progress on some of the most important issues of our time. Previous positions she's held include serving as the Deputy Director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism. Rachel also directed the Culture Program at Third Way, a Washington, D.C. think tank. In that capacity, she helped draft the first-of-its-kind Common Ground Abortion Bill to be introduced jointly by pro-life and pro-choice members of Congress. And she's served as legal counsel at the National Women's Law Center. She has degrees from both Harvard and the University of Chicago, and we welcome once again to Common Threads, Rachel Laser. Hi, Rachel. Hi, nice to be back. Yeah, nice to have you back. Uh, listen, last, last week, I remember that we were in the process of talking about this task force, and you were giving us some examples of, of why you are concerned about the task force, even though they have not come out with any findings or directives yet. Uh, you say that 
uh, because of what we've seen in the past year and a half under the uh, Trump administration, that you just suspect that this is going to go in a particular direction. Could we back up a little bit from where we left off, if you can remember, and uh, uh, give us a couple of examples of just exactly why you hold this view? Sure. So of, of why I hold the view that it's situated within uh, numerous other actions from the Trump-Pence administration to deny religious liberty for all? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there you go. You have um, such a okay, sweet way of sure. putting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I mean, we, we had talked about sort of who was invited to the summit and those really being representatives of the religious right only and some of the words that were said about the the danger of this uh, sort of cultural change of today that, you know, needed to be um, challenged and um, eradicated. Um, But yes, this task force was actually put in place to enforce a, what we call a blueprint for discrimination that the Department of Justice released last year that allows um, taxpayer dollars to be used, not just to discriminate in hiring, which is terrible, but also suggested that they could be used to discriminate in who you serve and what services you provide. So that's very scary, right? That's like gay teenagers being turned away from homeless shelters and um, women who are victims of sex trafficking um, and may be worried about being pregnant, um, not being able to be taken for reproductive care, things of that nature. And I was saying that that's just really the DOJ blueprint for discrimination is just, again, one of a series of actions that we've seen so far out of this administration. Here's some others that just to sort of add to the list. The Department of Health and Human Services created an Office of Conscience and Religious Freedom, um, which is, it really, it should be about preventing discrimination, not sanctioning it, but that is intended to, and with that, I should say, they also put out a request for information. They asked to know how current laws are burdening your religious freedom. You know, and, and there's already a Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights that exists to take such complaints. And they've already been dealing with religious discrimination, mostly, frankly, complaints from religious minorities. Although, of course, you know, the government should, and as Americans United does, protect the religious liberty of all people, including Christians. Um, you know, so that was never at issue, but they created this special office, which is about, you know, collecting these additional complaints for where people feel burdened by government protections, right? And basically what we're talking about is non-discrimination bills um, we're talk- and provisions, and we're talking about the provision of health care, which brings me to Another final rule that came out of the Health and Human Services Administration under Trump and Pence, which are regulations that would let bosses and universities use their personal religion to deny all of their employees and students access to birth control. You know, and and, uh, that went into effect immediately in the way the administration um, implemented the, the rule. And we, of course, we've actually sued, and then we sued again now. We sued them and Notre Dame under this um, provision. But again, this interim final rule is really about denying birth control to women in the name of religion. Can you tell me a little bit about how that works? How do they keep birth control from women, say, at at a college? 
Uh-huh, because the Affordable Care Act under Obama, what some call Obamacare, required as a preventive service um, birth control for women, that, that women should have access to birth control as part of their preventive care. And what this administration did is they've interpreted the, a law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to mean that there are all these personal exemptions. If a, um, Think of uh, Hobby Lobby. Right. Um, you know, think of uh, Notre Dame, <laughs> you know, just trying to provide concrete examples. Um, right. Notre Dame, which um, which has many students of many different faiths and many employees, too, you know, of many different faiths. Now being able to say, you know, because we're a Catholic um, based university that we're preventing all women um, from having uh, access to birth control coverage, you know, who are part of this campus. So basically, what we're talking about is we believe in an America where American law, like we need a shared moral and ethical code, right? I mean, some say there's over 2,000 different religious denominations today in America. It's chaos, right? It's great, it's beautiful, and it's chaos. So what's going to govern in America? And what we've agreed in this country is we're not going to be a country that's governed by anyone's religion, right? We're going to be governed by our shared moral code, which we pass in the form of American law, right? And so we have these protections in place, the provision of birth control coverage that comes with Obamacare. And now what, what the Trump-Pence administration is trying to do is say, we're going to actually carve out an exemption for, and basically it's, it's, it's empowering really one more narrow-minded religious views view on birth control. So it's not really about carving out an exemption for everybody's religion. It's like saying we're going to actually give precedence to the, those who, who religiously, or at least who claim religiously, right? There's some debate about whether this is more of a political movement or, you know, a, a religious movement that's really political, versus a religious movement that's really religious, but we'll, we'll leave that question on the table, right? So it's really about empowering and giving precedence to one viewpoint in America over what's American law, right? It's the same thing with the Baker in Colorado, where Colorado passed through their state legislature uh, a public accommodations bill that says we don't want discrimination against gay and lesbian people in our state. That was passed. That's our. That was their shared Colorado code. In fact, you know, sadly, you know, not every state has that. You know, but that, but they do. And so then, what Jack Phillips, the baker, wanted to say is, I want, I want to carve out an exemption just based on my personal religious beliefs. He happens to be a fundamentalist Christian, um, and deny Charlie Craig and David Mullins their wedding cake, deny them their dignity in the store, and deny them their wedding cake. So it's about putting one religious group, sort of giving one religious group power over the rest of us, right? Imposing one religious group's views on the rest of us, on students at Notre Dame, on employees at Notre Dame, on whoever goes in the bakeries of Colorado. And that's what we at Americans United for Separation of Church and State are invested in fighting, Right, we're invested in an America where it's not just religious liberty for some, where it's religious liberty for all of us. And what that means is 
no one is using their religion to cause harm to other people, but instead we're sort of protecting in the way that it was meant to be people's ability to congregate together, to believe and pray how they want. But guess what? When we come together in our public spaces, the way this American experiment is going to work is if we all agree to abide by American law and not to put our personal, not to use our personal belief systems to impose harm on others. America can't work that way. Speaking of, of birth control for a moment, I think, don't I remember uh, that uh, Sessions used as an example, I uh, said that uh, Obamacare or, or the government was forcing nuns to distribute birth control or something like that, which is completely false. Can you tell us why yeah, that's false? Yeah, no, that's the Little Sisters of the Poor case. I mean, here's the deal. Um, and actually, this brings up Brett Kavanaugh, which is another, which of course is the nominee by the Trump-Pence administration to fill Justice Kennedy's seat. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh sort of is incredibly conservative on church-state separation. In fact, he believes that the metaphor of the wall of the separation of church and state is the wrong metaphor as a matter of law and history. He does not believe in the separation of church and state, but it, and it's related to this, uh, this concept of forcing, you know, this false concept of forcing nuns to provide birth control. Here's the deal. The birth control regulations under the Obama administration as part of this Affordable Care Act carved out a complete exemption for churches, right, as is always the case, right? So churches do whatever they want. Churches, synagogues, mosques, you know, houses of worship, they're out. But then there was a big debate about what about religiously affiliated groups, you know, that may have have an issue. You know, and again, you know, groups that serve people of different faiths, that employ people of different faiths, that are getting government money, you know, or not. So what about those groups? Like, what are we going to do in terms of the birth control regulations with those groups? And what the administration decided on was what they called an accommodation. So the accommodation said, okay, we understand that you may, you know, if you, if you really feel like you have a problem, you know, uh, covering birth control, even though it's not going to cost you anything, but if you really feel morally like you have a problem, here's what you can do. You can sign a one-page waiver, and then we will have the insurance company deal directly with the woman to make sure that she gets it. In other words, you can sign a waiver, and you're out. And what religiously affiliated groups like Little Sisters of the Poor did is they sued, and they said, that is way too onerous. (laughs) (laughs) That signing the waiver, we're still complicit, we don't like it. Um, So... Um, that's what this sort of claim is about. And Brett Kavanaugh actually um, was on the D.C. Circuit um, when a similar case came to light, you know, because he's obviously been a D.C. Circuit judge for a while, called Priests for Life, same idea. And he basically said in his dissent, not agreeing with the D.C. Circuit actually, he said that religion should be should carve out an exemption. Religion should be able to be used to cause harm, to deny things like birth control to women. He disagreed with eight of nine circuits that way. So he's really out of the mainstream. Eight of nine circuits have said, you know what? We think it's okay to have a waiver signed. 
yeah. you know, that sort of gets the group out of it. It's a reasonable way of dealing with this and making sure that women still have access to this important health care that, that our government has decided and our Congress has decided should be available. If- so that's what, that's what he meant. And that's another reason why Brett Kavanaugh is so dangerous. It was hardly a surprise to us. All four, you know, finalists that were being considered for the Supreme Court spot of Justice Kennedy were terrible on church-state separation. So think about the timing of the Religious Liberty Task Force, too. And, you know, the Brett Kavanaugh announcement, obviously it wasn't up to the Trump administration when Justice Kennedy was going to announce that he would resign. But, you know, you could definitely say that the timing around the Religious Liberty Task Force announcement was geared to the midterm elections. Yes, yes. You know, it's a lot about pandering to that white Christian evangelical base of Trump's, you know. And I I mean, I don't, you could say it's a cynical use of religion for partisan political purposes, right? One could say that. Definitely one valid interpretation of why this happened now. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Rachel Laser. She's the president and CEO of Americans for the Separation of Church and State, and we are talking about the Religious Liberty Task Force. So there are two people who apparently will be heading the task force. One is Jesse Panuccio and the other Beth Williams. Who are they? Do you know? Well, I know more about... Panuccio than I do about Beth Williams. I mean, I think she's the assistant AG for the Office of Legal Policy or something. Um, so obviously she's part of this administration and, and um, conservative. But um, Jesse Panuccio was a lawyer for supporters of Proposition 8 in California, which of course was California's same-sex marriage ban. So he comes out of a sort of He comes from a history of thwarting LGBTQ equality in this country. And he, yeah, and he's one of the two leaders of the the task force, which is, you know, not surprising and obviously not remotely promising. Sure. Um, One thing that Jeff Sessions said uh, when introducing the task force, he said, we've had senators question political nominees on religious dogma. I don't even know, I, I know what it means, but I, I don't ever recall that. Is, is that true? Um, yes. Um, there was um, an incident, it was actually before I came to Americans United for Separation of Church and State, where Senator Dianne Feinstein on the Judiciary Committee was questioning a very, very sort of conservative um, sort of fundamentalist judge nominee for a lower court about her views on she had talked about needing to recuse herself from a case or something as a Catholic and it made Senator Feinstein worry that she was going to have a hard time sort of not bringing her religion to her post as judge. And she used those words that really became a lightning rod 
um, particular among, you know, in the fundamentalist community about, you know, discrimination based on religion coming from liberals. Mm. So I think that's, that's what the reference was to. Do you think that uh, uh, Senator Feinstein was prudent in, in this uh, concern? You know, I think it's really delicate to use the word dogma, although I myself use it at times. I mean, again, it's, you know, um, sort of true believers who are, you know, taught certain things from their religious uh, house of worship um, aren't, let's just say, even people, many people who, you know, are taught bad things about Jews like me, (laughs) you know, and bad things about gay and lesbian people, about transgender people, bad things about women who've had abortions and things, aren't bad people, you know? And, um, you know, I would argue that those beliefs are very harmful, you know, that they harbor. But I think that it's it's a delicate and fine line often when you accuse someone, for example, of being bigoted, um, or, you know, I think dogma, um, obviously put on a set of religious beliefs has very, you know, judgmental negative implications, you know, in a country where what we're saying is you can believe what you want, you know? So I think we have to be careful. I think what's happened though in recent years that sort of blurs the line is that there's been this effort by a really a politically conservative movement to use religion to advance their discriminatory agenda. And so I think what, what happens is when, when folks want to call those people out on using religion to really advance a political agenda that feels bigoted, feel, you know, discriminatory, that sometimes words like dogma are chosen to, to sort of describe that situation that then can be sort of turned easily into your, you know, bias against my, you know, here you are saying you're for all, religious freedom for all, but you're biased against my religion. Right. Does that right. make sense? Sure, sure. I understand that. Uh, two of the uh, categories of people that you've mentioned uh, uh, who may be concerned about the task force, one was Muslims and uh, the other, the LGBT community, the T standing for transgendered. I'm curious on your take. Now, this, I, I read this a couple of days ago, and I don't know if you've seen this. Apparently, there is a Muslim prisoner who does not want to be strip-searched by a transgendered male. I'm wondering where you might fall on, the, uh, uh, on, on that issue. Uh, wow. <laughs> I mean, yes. Yes. Um, you know, I am for sort of, I am for equality for all. It reminds me of sort of the bathrooms issue, which I know better <laughs> than sort of, it's a little bit hard for me to speak about that particular incident because I don't know the particulars of it. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it, but I can talk about something that very related, which is, you know, people often get very concerned about bathrooms and about transgender women. So those are folks who were biologically born men who have transitioned to what they feel is their true gender as women using bathrooms. And people get very nervous about 
how safe or not women will be in those bathrooms with transgender women being in the bathrooms alongside of them. And the interesting aspect of of those cases is there's actually been not one incident ever reported that I've ever heard of, of a transgender woman harassing a woman, you know, in a another woman in one of those bathrooms, in one of those states where, you know, where this has been contested. Um, In fact, the way that it usually goes is the safety of the transgender woman is more imperiled because, you know, maybe she has an Adam's apple or maybe she's super tall and doesn't look like the standard definition of a woman and she's sort of more accosted um, you know, then she is accosting others, which just hasn't happened. So I think that um, I think that there's often, you know, a, a fear, you know, that is present and just based on a lot of misunderstanding, you know. And I think gender norms is such a sort of sort of staple for so many people in their sort of their a binary thing in their way of thinking. I think less so for this next generation. I see it in my, you know, teenage kids. But, you know, I think for, for so many people that it's it, it can make you fearful. Um, but, but when you start to sort of think harder about how these things play out and who feels particularly vulnerable, um, it's it's really often more the transgender person who is by far more vulnerable in the situation than not. I'm going to ask you something that I probably shouldn't so close to the end of the show. We only have about four or five minutes, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, One of the, the words we have not used today or when we spoke last week is uh, um, dominionism. Uh, and, and that is, of course, the movement that uh, strives for the recognition that this is, in fact, a Christian nation. I'm curious, have you ever openly debated somebody from that, that side? You know, I haven't yet, and I really, I do look forward to doing that. I really do, because, you know, I th- I've thought about th- that a lot, right? I mean, there are there are lots of arguments that the other side brings to the table about tradition. And by the way, so does Brett Kavanaugh. Um, you know, he argues that, you know, tradition is really important to look at. And, you know, what we know is that tradition, while it is important to examine, often sort of in, it advances sort of bias and privilege, you know, as it's existed over time. Um, in America, we have two provisions in our constitution and that are directly about religion and there's no mention of christianity or jesus christ i mean the us constitution and i know that everyone knows this but it bears restating is a wholly secular document you know and it's got the first amendment holy with a w laws. holy with a w right very good. Very good. Yes, with a W. Yeah. Um, so it's got the First Amendment, which bars laws respecting an establishment of religion um, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And it's got Article 6, which prohibits religious tests for public office. 
And over time, you know, when there have been amendments made to put religion back into our Constitution, they've inevitably been defeated. And, you know, our founding fathers like Jefferson and James Madison, you know, were part of, for example, taking away uh, sort of the religiosity from Virginia and passing in 1786 a law guaranteeing religious freedom for all. So, I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, we in our Constitution have a lot of ideals. And the the truth about our country is we haven't always attained those ideals, right? We've fallen short very often. But they're ideals, and that's sort of what's so beautiful about our Constitution, that they, right, they, they set us up with a wonderful set of, of, of ideals. And it's very clear that those ideals are about a secular America, you know, and the dangerousness of, you know, merging church into state for both church and state. So, you know, there's, there's this other thing, you know, that a lot of church-state separationists like to point to, the U.S. Treaty for Tripoli. Do you know about that oh, one? Oh, yeah, of course, where Jefferson said we're not a Christian country. And, 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 right. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I have to stop you right there. I told you yeah. this was not a good idea. No, <laughs> that, that's lady. okay. You, you ended it in a good place. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, well, listen, uh, uh, very quickly, what's the uh, website uh, for Americans for Separation? So it's auforamericansunited.org, au.org, or you can follow us on all social media at Americans United. Wonderful. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for your time today and last week as well. It's been an enlightening experience. You're welcome. Nice to speak with you. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Rachel Laser, the president and CEO of Americans for the Separation of Church and State. This is Common Threads, and we invite you back next week here on Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening, and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.